0: Sufism, it's important for us to know where the tradition we're dialoguing with comes from, and I thought it'd be good to look at a couple questions about Sufism. People sometimes talk about pre-Islamic Sufism or non-Islamic Sufism or Islamic Sufism, and I wanted to give us a way of approach to these questions. Do we associate Sufism only and solely with Islam? Is it the heart of Islam? And I wanna look at two answers that come from within the tradition itself. And they really revolve around the question, well, where do we begin when we ask this question, what is Sufism? Do we begin before the beginning of time? Do we begin the beginning of creation? Uh, Do we begin with uh, the life and the teaching of the prophet Muhammad? Where do we begin when we ask the question? And so I want to read to you, uh, in Once Upon a Time fashion, a telling of the coming of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, This comes from traditional sources. So put on your Once Upon a Time ears and settle in for for story time for a few minutes. 424,000 years before the creation of the heavens or the earth, or the Empyrean, or the Throne, or the Table of Decrees, or the Pen Divine, or Paradise, or Hell. God created the light of Muhammad. The light passed through 20 seas of light, each containing the sciences that no one understands but God. And when it emerged from the last sea of light, the seas fell in adoration and formed 124,000 drops of light, each drop a prophet in the great procession that circled the light. God then formed a gem from that light and split it in two. One half became the waters, and God placed the other half on those waters, and it became the Empyrean. Then God created the throne, which beamed from the Empyrean, and from the throne, the table of decrees, and from the tablet, the pen divine. God commanded the pen to write. But the pen lay confounded for a thousand years. What should I write? La ilaha illa la. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is God's messenger. Who is this Muhammad that you speak his name with yours? O oh, pen... If he had not existed, I would not have created you. Then God created paradise and the angels, and from the vapor that rose from the water of the sundered gem, the seven heavens, and from the foam of the water, the seven earths. But this world rocked like a ship at sea, so God placed mountains upon it to keep it steady. God created an angel to hold up the earth, and a rock without measure, for the angel to stand on, and a bull on whose back the rock rested, and a fish to support the bull. The fish rests on water, the water rests on air, the air rests on darkness, but what the darkness rests on only God knows. Then God created the souls of the faithful the sun and moon and stars, night and day, light and darkness, and further hosts of angels. The light of Muhammad dwelt for 73,000 years in the Empyrean, then 70,000 years in Paradise, then another 70,000 years in Sidrat al-Muntaha, the tree in the seventh heaven beyond which none may pass, where the light remained until God willed the creation of Adam, the first of humankind. The angel Israel gathered dust from all parts of the earth, white, black, and red dirt, soft and hard, which is why the complexions of the children of Adam are so varied, and why the prophet said that all the children of Adam are the same, like teeth in a comb. And the angel Jibreel carried it to the place decreed to be the site of Muhammad's tomb, kneading it with water to form a human being. God commanded Adam's spirit to enter his body, but the spirit complained that the entrance was too narrow, so God decreed that forever with aversion would it enter and with aversion leave its mortal abode. When the spirit entered his eyes and he saw his own form and the angels singing his praises, Adam sneezed. So God gave Adam speech, and he cried out, Alhamdulillah! Praise be to God. The light of Muhammad radiated from the index finger of Adam, and from the forehead of his wife Hawa, and from their son Shays, and from his wife, the beautiful Mahavella, and from their son Anush. It was with Ibrahim. When he was cast into the furnace of nimrod with Nu on the ark with yunus in the stomach of the fish and on throughout the generations until it reached abd al-muttalib and his son abdallah whose radiance gave him the name lamp of the sacred city and his wife amina pearl shell of the jewel of prophecy amina said that on the day the prophet was born she heard innumerable voices unlike anything human and saw a banner of the silk of paradise mounted on a ruby staff filling all the space between heaven and earth. A youth appeared, taller and more handsome and more elegantly dressed than any she had ever seen, who took her baby and cut open the baby's chest and removed his heart and washed it in a bowl of snow. He then cut open the heart and extracted from it a single black drop and then returned the heart without leaving a mark. The youth and the baby spoke together in a language Amina could not understand. On the night Muhammad was born, every idol toppled over. The palace of the emperor of Persia trembled, its dome split in two, and 14 towers collapsed. The next morning, all the kings of the world found their thrones facing backwards. On that night, the great fish Tamusa, chief of all that swim in the sea, with 700,000 tails and 700,000 oxen who walk up and down his back, each with 70,000 horns of emerald, cattle of which Tamusa is unaware, for they are like flies on his immensity. On that night, the great fish was shaking with joy, and had not God calmed him down, the earth would have turned over. So I, I read you that beautiful once upon a time to give you a sense of how uh, Muhammad is has understood traditionally, this bigger picture that there's the nur of Muhammad, the light of prophecy uh, that, that exists before creation. As it said in the text 124,000 drops of light formed from the one light. And uh, it's said traditionally that God has sent at least 124,000 prophets to every culture, every people, to reveal the same essential truths in their own idiom, and their own language. So this, this sense of the, the Nur Muhammad, it's very much like the logos, the logos in Christian tradition, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was the light of all people. And we hear that same light speaking through the voice of Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. I am the light shining upon all things. Everything comes forth from me. Toward me all things unfold. From and toward and in and through that one light. So if we start the story here and ask the question, what is Sufism and when did Sufism begin? Sufis will say that, well, Sufism is the mystical heart of every revelation, of every tradition, and that Sufism began with the first human being, with the prophet Adam, that there's never been a time or a prophetic tradition that didn't have a mystical heart, and that living flame is the fire of Sufism. So so that's one answer, but you have to have a tradition that teaches that. And where does that tradition come from? And now we move into historical specificity. Some people will speak occasionally of pre-Islamic Sufism. And if what you mean by that is pre-Islamic mysticism, well, absolutely, Uh, of course, there's always been mysticism. But Sufism, as we receive it and understand it today, is really unimaginable outside the context of the life and teaching of the Prophet Muhammad. The character of the Sufi tradition, its humanness, its tenderness, its openness, its sense of pluralism, of religious uh, diversity and pluralism, all of that is rooted explicitly within the life and teachings of Muhammad. And so the tradition we receive historically, we would have to trace to that window of time that it's birthed in. But from within the tradition, the tradition would say that that inner heart is actually present from the beginning and in all traditions. So two answers from within the tradition. But I thought this morning we would just back up because I think we'd do ourselves a disservice if we try to talk about Sufism outside of the life of Muhammad or outside of Islam. So I want to do just a little Islam 101 or Life of the Prophet 101 and look briefly at who he was and how his character shapes the essence of Sufism. So, again, it's said that every tradition and culture has received a prophet, and the Quran recognizes 124,000 prophets, and explicitly included in that is Adam, David, Solomon, Noah, Jonah, John the Baptist, Jesus, and Mary. Mary meets the qualifications in the Quran for a prophet, so they're both women and men. And implicitly included are the great teachers of all traditions. So implicitly included is the Buddha, is Lao Tzu, is Krishna, is Confucius, because the tradition recognizes every culture, every people, every language has been given guidance. But the teaching is that at this time in Arabian lands, the Arabian people were without a prophet. And so the time before the coming of the Prophet Muhammad is called the Jahiliyyah, which means the times of ignorance, the period of ignorance. Arabia at this time was kind of a cultural backwater. It was steeped in sort of regressive and oppressive tribal practices, widespread practices like female infanticide, lots of tribal warfare. And one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad Jafar ibn Abu Talib. He was with a group of the early followers who went for a period into sort of exile in Abyssinia to escape persecution. And the Christian king in Abyssinia asked him to explain this faith. And here's the answer that's recorded. He replied We were a people lost in ignorance. We worshiped idols. We backstabbed one another in gossip. We committed sins without shame. We severed the bonds of mercy among us, and we were unkind neighbors. The strong among us devoured the weak. Thus we were until God sent to us a messenger from among ourselves, well known to us in his nobility, honesty, trustworthiness, and tenderness. He called us to unity and to devoting our worship to God alone, and to removing the idols from our hearts. He commanded us to be truthful when we spoke, and to fulfill our trust, and to preserve the bonds of mercy among us, and to be kind neighbors, and to desist from violating what is sacred. He called us to turn back from our sins, and from falsehood, and from devouring the wealth of orphans, and from defaming the honorable. So we believed in him, and in his message, and we followed What he received from his Lord. Uh, So that gives you a sense of how the times were understood times of violence, times of division, times that lacked mercy. And so it's into that world that Muhammad was born. He was born in the year 571, so the late 6th century, so almost 600 years after the life and teachings of Jesus. And he was born to a couple named Amina and Abdallah, And his father, Abdallah died while Amina was still pregnant. And so Muhammad was born the only child of his mother and uh, grew up fatherless. And his mother, as was the practice at the time, sent him to live, uh, to be weaned by a Bedouin wet nurse. And so the children would be sent out into the desert Uh, They would learn classical Arabic from the Bedouin and be weaned in the desert climes and then come back. Because Muhammad was fatherless and Amina couldn't afford to fully pay a wet nurse, at first no one would accept this baby uh, to take him on. And at last uh, a woman named Halima agreed to take him on as a kindness, as a charity of sorts. And eventually Muhammad would go back to his mother Amina. So he was raised by these two women, Amina and Halima, who uh, loved him uh, dearly. But his mother Amina would die during his youth, and he was then sent to live with his uncle Abu Talib. And his uncle worked the trade routes, and so Muhammad began learning the ways of being a merchant and working trade. And he became noted for his trustworthiness and his integrity as a tradesman, as a, as a businessman on the trade routes. And people would often go to him to settle disputes because he was seen as such a trustworthy character. And around the age of 20, he started working for a wealthy businesswoman named Khadija, who was a widow. And she was taken by this young Muhammad. She was 40 and he was 20 and uh, she was really taken by his integrity, his trustworthiness, and so she started putting feelers out to find out if he was single, and she sent a proposal to him, and he accepted. He accepted Khadija's marriage proposal, and by all accounts, they were wildly in love. They had a a 25-year-long monogamous relationship until Khadija's death. She died Later in the year 619, and it's remembered in the tradition as the year of sadness, of of Muhammad's brokenheartedness. So in the year 607, Muhammad had been going into regular seclusion for a number of years into a cave on a local mountain, Mount Hira, and he was uh, something of a natural contemplative, was drawn to a meditative practice, to retreat and seclusion, and it's a practice, of course, he had seen the Christians in the area practicing, Christians who had cave churches and cave retreats. And he was drawn in this sort of tribal, violent, pagan culture. He found himself increasingly drawn to the monotheism of, of Christians, of the Jews in the area, and of a, a group of people that are called Hanifs, the Hanifia, or Hanifs. Um, and they were sort of Spiritual seekers—they were kind of like unaffiliated monotheists—and so he developed this practice of retreat. And in the year 607, while he was on retreat in the cave on Mount Hira, he felt his as if his entire body were being embraced and squeezed, and he heard a voice, an inner voice, say, "Proclaim, uh, proclaim, or recite," and he didn't know how to respond. He said, I'm not a proclaimer. And this was repeated three times, this embrace of his full being. On the third time, the words came tumbling out of his mouth, proclaim in the name of your Lord. They became the first words of the first uh, revelation of the Quran. And the Quran simply means the recitation, um, that he was reciting what he was receiving from this inner guidance. Uh, the tradition has identified that guidance as the angel Gabriel or Jibril. But in the Sufi tradition, it's also understood that the angelic isn't necessarily something outside of us, that there's an angelic intelligence within each of us, that there's that channel of revelation, of that higher angelic intelligence within each of us. So you can understand it either way, that it was an opening to that angelic revelatory intelligence or the external messenger. And he was so terrified by this experience, this opening in his being, that he, he went running out of the cave. And the accounts say that everywhere he looked, he saw nothing but the face of Gabriel, this angel of revelation. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. And so he went running home to Khadijah. And he ran into her embrace. And he said, cover me. And she wrapped him in a blanket and she held Her husband, he explained this experience that had happened in the cave, and she calmed him and said, Oh, Muhammad, you're the best man that I know. I don't think you're going crazy. I think this is an authentic spiritual experience. And she encouraged him to speak with her cousin, Waraka, who was a Christian. So he entered into dialogue with this Christian family member, who affirmed that this didn't seem to him like insanity. It seemed like inspiration. So Muhammad held this experience close for about three years. He didn't begin preaching publicly for three years. He just sat with what was awakening in his being. And in the year 610, he began sharing the message publicly in, in the streets. It was seen as a deeply divisive message because he was calling people to the worship of one, one reality. And at the time, you had tribal deities who reinforced tribal separation. You had tribes that were warring with each other, playing constant games of one-upmanship. And Muhammad was preaching a message that leveled all of that. One family, one humanity, one divinity. And he began preaching against the social injustices that were Practice that were alive in the culture. And so his message was seen as really threatening. It was a very simple message, though. It, it was obviously in the lineage of uh, he spoke of Jesus, he spoke of David, he spoke of the Torah and the Psalms and the Gospel. So he saw it as flowing through that Judeo-Christian lineage. The heart of it was one God, social justice, and self-surrender, which is what the word Islam means, self-surrender to the divine. And that word Islam, initially, as Muhammad used it, it wasn't the name of a new religion. It was simply self-surrender to the one divine reality. The root letters, S-L-M, in in that word, they're the same root for the word Salam, peace, and Salim, wholeness. And so a Muslim is simply one who is living in or striving towards that state of surrender, peace, and wholeness a state of harmony with the divine. And in that sense, the Quran actually recognizes people of all revelations as Muslim, with a small m. And so it speaks of the peoples of other religions and the prophets of other religions as Muslim. So it's not saying they were capital M Muslim, it's saying they were human beings in a state of surrender to the one reality. So as he preached, he began gathering this sort of fledgling movement around him, and it's, it's what today we would probably call a radical interfaith movement, because the followers were this ragtag band of converted polytheists, Jews, Christians, these Hanifs, these unaffiliated monotheists. They were all drawn to this simple message And they were simply called the believers at the beginning. Uh, They were the believers' movement. So it was like the believers' interfaith movement in Arabia. Their creed was simple. It was la ilaha il Allah. There is no God but the one God. And Muhammad was seen as a messenger of that one. And the Quran itself makes really explicitly clear the sort of interfaith or pluralistic nature of the movement. So I'm going to read a a few quotes from the Qur'an. Uh, and, and remember, this was initially, it wasn't a, a text-based revelation. It was an oral and an oral revelation. It was spoken and heard, only later written down. So the revelation stated that those who have attained to faith, as well as those who follow the Jewish faith, and the Christians, and the Sabians, it's unclear who the Sabians are referencing. Some scholars think this was a reference to the Zoroastrian community. All who believe in God in the last day and do righteous deeds shall have their reward with their sustainer, and no fear need they have, and neither shall they grieve. So the new revelation was in no way in opposition to other religious traditions. And it stated that the faithful are commanded no more than this, to worship God, sincere in their faith in God alone, turning away from all that is false, to remain constant in prayer and to practice regular charity, for this is the true and straight way. So, again, very simple, not highly theological, but just a call to prayerful and just living and faith in the unseen reality. So the tradition then went on and explicitly, really explicitly affirmed religious difference that we tend to see religious difference as a problem that needs to be solved. And the Quran said, it's not a problem. It's actually intentional. God intends the diversity of religions. So this is another passage. And to every one of you, we have appointed a different law and way of life. And if God had so willed, God could surely have made you all one single community. But God willed it otherwise. In order to test you by means of what has been vouchsafed to you, vie then with one another in doing good works. Unto God you all must return, and then God will make you truly understand all that on which you are wont to differ. And it goes on to say that God made human beings into diverse communities so that we may come to know one another. Not so that we may fight each other or convert each other to our own way, but so that we may come to know one another. So it's a vision of pluralism that was revolutionary in its time, and it's really still revolutionary today. Uh, An explicit vision of pluralism within an Abrahamic theological matrix. Our Abrahamic traditions have always tended towards one-upmanship, whether it's a notion of a chosen people or the notion of salvation through Jesus alone. We tend towards some form of superiority or exclusivity. And of course, Islam, as it develops after this, will tend towards that as well. Um, But right there in the tradition is this affirmation of pluralism. So the emerging community, it was both pluralistic and egalitarian in the context of a deeply tribal and patriarchal social structure. And the Quran's insistence that there was only one God doesn't need to be seen as a principle of exclusivity, uh, theological exclusivity. It rejected the Arabian gods, not out of a sense of exclusivity, but because there was a recognition that these tribal deities and tribal practices were reinforcing oppressive and regressive social tendencies. Uh, So these gods allowed, for example, as I said, female infanticide was widely practiced. And so by rejecting these other deities and affirming one deity that has revealed itself to all people, it was affirming both diversity and human unity at the same time. And the tradition went on to culturally uplift women. Uh, So for example, the chronic revelation gave women property rights that they didn't have, gave them divorce rights that they didn't have. A woman could choose to leave a marriage. And it strongly condemned the practice of infanticide. And the Quran often breaks with linguistic custom in the text to address women and men. Still in English today, we have the assumption if you address something to man or mankind, you know, it includes everyone. Well, the Quran breaks with that. For example, says things like this, all men and women who have surrendered themselves to God, all believing men and believing women, all truly devout men And truly devout women. It's intentionally including women in its statements. The last point I'll address in just sort of the beginnings of the tradition are the the question around violence. In the earliest days of the this growing interfaith believers movement, Muhammad always modeled turning the other cheek, always modeled nonviolent resistance. And there's some really beautiful stories. Uh, in the early days, one story is told about this woman, this wealthy woman who despised everything Muhammad was doing, despised the teachings, and she would wait every day for he, he walked down her street, and she would wait for him to pass by, and she would throw her trash out the window at just that moment so it would hit him. And he never responded or reacted violently. He would, you know, shake it off and, and move on in kindness. This just sort of became the daily practice. And one day he passes under the window, and no trash hits his head and he becomes concerned that something's wrong, you know? (laughs) So he knocks on the door and goes in and finds that she's fallen ill, and he actually cares for her, uh, helps get aid for her, and she's so touched and moved by this that she then embraces the new movement. So in the early days, nonviolent sort of pacifist resistance was modeled, and persecutions began picking up against the community, And the first martyrs of the faith uh, were killed. And the community realized that it needed to move out of Mecca. And so they began just sort of quietly in waves, moving to a town called Yathrib, some miles away from Medina. And the Prophet Muhammad snuck out by night with his companion Abu Bakr after much of the community had already made the journey. When it was realized he was gone, a group was sent to, to kill him in the desert. The story goes sort of a St. Francis-type story, he and Abu Bakr saw a cave that they could climb into and hide in, and it was the only place they could turn. So they climb into this cave, and then the, the squad coming to kill them, they see the opening, and as they're about to climb in to see if uh, they're in there, which would mean certain death, one of them looks up and sees that a spider has woven a web closing the whole opening of the cave, and the one foothold you'd need to climb up a bird has woven a nest in that, and they go, oh, it looks like no one's been here for weeks, and they move on. And the story is the spider and the bird quickly had done this to save them. And so um, very traditional Muslims will never smush a spider in the house. You always, because remember the prophet, the spider saved, so you always gently carry the spider and place it outside. So there, there are these beautiful stories of the relationship with the creatures and creation serving to protect. So... As they emigrated, the Quraysh tribe, the tribe that Muhammad belonged to, wants to see, uh, all the tribes by and large, want to see him exterminated. And so they start plotting a literal extermination of the movement. And it's at this time that the Quran gives permission for defensive fighting and only in cases of defensive warfare. And, so, and it adds a stark caution. So here's the verse. Fight in the way of God against those who wage war against you, but never begin hostilities. For verily, God does not love aggressors. And then limiting violence even further, it goes on to state that you have to cease fighting the moment the oppressors back down. Should they back down, it says, But if they cease, behold, God is much forgiving, a dispenser of grace. If they desist, then all hostility shall cease. So it's a permission given only in defensive contexts. It goes on to affirm a Jewish teaching, I think from the Mishnah, becomes a verse in the Quran, that if anyone killed an innocent person, quote, it would be as though they had slain all of humankind. Whereas if anyone saves a life, it would be as though they had saved the lives of all humankind. So in comparison with what was normative violence by tribal standards, this was a huge limit placed on warfare uh, a- according to tribal norms. And it's really easy for us to uplift Jesus' nonviolent mode of resistance and look down on this permission given to this fledgling movement. And I think this is where context is really important. One, this revelation was trying to inch a deeply violent tribal culture forward. And so it put huge limitations on what was allowed. Only defensive fighting to protect a community. And the moment peace was initiated, it had to be embraced. Uh, But it's also important to remember that for Jesus, nonviolent resistance wasn't only a higher road, it was a better strategy. In the context of Roman Empire, violent resistance movements were squashed overnight. Every movement of violent resistance against the empire, the empire smashed it. And so a nonviolent tactic in the context of empire was the smartest way to uh, secure the survival of your movement. Violent resistance would end your movement. In the context of tribal warring Arabia, the flip was true. At such a sensitive uh, moment in the beginning of this movement, If they had not defended themselves, the movement would have been erased overnight. The tribes would have wiped them out. And so to give permission to defend themselves actually allowed the survival of the movement because of a total flip of cultural context. So I think it's important to always just keep these kinds of things in mind and that it's one thing for an individual to hold to the high ideal. Uh, For Jesus himself— to go to a cross. It's another thing to impose that on an entire community, to say that you can't protect your children. You have to let your children be eradicated. You can't defend your partner. So, radically different contexts. Some years later, as the movement grows, the prophet returns in 629. Uh, The community has been prevented from making pilgrimage back to Mecca. They're given permission in the year 629 to return. And so the movement actually returns, uh, now 10,000 strong, back to Mecca and nonviolently enter the city and return to the city. And the prophet at this point commands and models leniency, forgiveness, and nonviolence as the community reintegrates. So those who had been their oppressors, he ordered forgiveness so that the community could become as one again. He also issued treatises with other religious communities, and one of the beautiful ones that survives comes from St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai, and again this shows the closeness and the kinship he felt with the desert monastic tradition. Uh, So this is a letter that is still held in St. Catherine's Monastery to this day. This is a message from Muhammad ibn Abdullah as a covenant to those who adopt Christianity near and far we are with them. Verily, I, the servants and the helpers and my followers, defend them because Christians are my citizens. And by God, I hold out against anything that displeases them. No compulsion is to be on them. Neither are their judges to be removed from their jobs, nor their monks from their monasteries. No one is to destroy a house of their religion, to damage it, or to carry anything from it to the Muslims' houses. Should anyone take any of these, they would spoil God's covenant and disobey God's messenger. Verily, they are my allies and have my secure charter against all that they hate. No one is to force them to travel or oblige them to fight. The Muslims are to fight for them. If a female Christian is married to a Muslim, it is not to take place without her approval. She is not to be prevented from visiting her church to pray. Their churches are to be respected. They are neither to be prevented from repairing them nor the sacredness of their covenants. No one of the Muslims is to disobey this covenant till the last day. So strong protection. And, and even in the Quran, this is a verse from the Quran. It's the voice of God speaking. You will surely find that of all people, the ones who are nearest to you in love, are those who say, we are Christians. That is because there are among them priests and monks and because they are not proud. When they hear that which has been revealed to the prophet, you see their eyes overflow with tears in recognition of its truth. So a real closeness um, between the, the traditions. In the year 632, the prophet falls ill. This leads to his death. Those who are closest to him gather around. He's just given a final sermon to the people, and he dies. And by this point, most of the Arabian Peninsula, uh, which had been this violent tribal society, has embraced the message. And it's said that when he died, it was as as if a gate of mercy had closed. Uh, The Quran says that Muhammad was sent only as a mercy to all the world's now the faithful had to open that gate of mercy within their own hearts. And Abu Bakr, one of his companions, it said that he came outside, you know, people were gathered around waiting to to hear the word if he was alive or not. And he came outside and said, Oh Muslims, if you worship Muhammad, Muhammad is dead. But if you worship God, God is living and never dies. And so uh, that closed the chapter of his life. And of course, much happened after that, and lots of division, and as with any tradition. But that's the sort of basic story. And it seems important to put it out there, because you see in his life the humanness that characterizes Sufism, that it's a, a, a very human path in, in the world and in relationship, the tenderness. Uh, there are stories of the Prophet Muhammad in the rows of Prayer. He would let his grandchildren, they w- they would come and when he would bend in prostration, they would climb on his back, and when he would stand up, you know, they would be on his shoulders. There are stories of him, of him kissing the, the children, um, kissing his grandson, and the Bedouin would see it and think it was shameful that you're not supposed to, you know, teach a man to be tender. You can't kiss your boy children. And he would defend this practice of, of teaching gentleness and affection to the little ones, which surely he learned by being brought up by these two women, as a child, who were his mothers, uh, Halima and Amina. And also the pluralism of Sufism. Sufism is so pluralistic, it's affirming of uh, God in all these different ways and forms. And again, that comes from the teachings of Muhammad. Yeah? Did he marry after Khadija died? Yes, yes. So during his marriage to Khadija, uh, they were monogamous and She was always considered the love of his life, and later wives would be jealous of the memory of Khadija. He did have other marriages. For the most part, they were also to widows. Often they were to establish tribal alliances as well, and so in the culture, it was normative for men to have more than one wife, and it was unusual that Muhammad in his life with Khadijah did not. But because of the tribal nature of the culture, you had more women than men because men were being killed in battle all of the time, which was also why infanticide, the killing of girls was common um, because there wasn't going to be a household to take them in. There wasn't going to be a husband for them. So the Quran set limits and it said that if a man can treat each woman with absolute equality, then he could marry up to four wives, Um, but if not, then only one. But the understanding was that this was a cultural necessity at the time, that women would be without a home and without a support system if it weren't the case. So lots of Muslims today understand that as an allowance that was relative to the time, and so most Muslims today believe in monogamous marriage. So Sufism, within Islam, Sufism is understood as not other than Islam. Sufis, historically, all Sufis were Muslim. Sufism was understood to be the contemplative heart, the mystical heart of the Islamic tradition. And without Sufism, you just had a dead form. Sufism was the lifeblood of the Islamic faith. Some of the Sufi orders, though, would allow students or dervishes who weren't of that religion. And so Rumi, from whom the Mevlevi order descends, would embrace students who were Jews or Christians uh, who weren't Muslim. There's a story of an elderly Christian man who comes to Rumi to become one of his students, and the other students want him to convert. And he says to Rumi, don't take this away from me. This has been my faith my whole life. And Rumi embraces him as a, as a Christian dervish, but the other Muslim dervishes keep pestering them. And Rumi says, why are you trying to convert the already converted? And so it's said on the Mevlevi path that if you come to this path a Jew, you will become a completed Jew. If you come to this path a Christian, you will become a completed Christian, a Muslim, a completed Muslim, that it's really the path of human completion and not of religious conversion. All the Sufi lineages trace themselves back to the prophet, and most of them through Ali, his nephew, who was... Himself quite contemplative, was seen as a Gnostic, a knower of God. And it said the Prophet would teach the zikr practice. The Quran has these lines in zikrullah, in remembrance of God, hearts find rest or hearts find peace. And uh, the Quran also says, call upon me by my most beautiful names, the Asma al-Husna, the beautiful names of God. And so the practice developed, contemplative practice of chanting the names of God. It said that the prophet would transmit these practices to different students based on their temperament. And so Abu Bakr, who was you know, a fiery temperament, he gave him a silent zikr, uh, a silent practice. And Ali, who was the contemplative, he gave him a vocal zikr. Early in the movement, you have uh, those who are longing for something more mystical and uh, more contemplative, and you see the prophet guiding them in that. At one point, he says to a group that he's teaching, when you pass by the gardens of paradise, then feast. And they say, where, O prophet, are the gardens of paradise? And he says, among the circles of remembrance, among the Zikr circles, those who are gathered Practicing remembrance and chanting the names of God, that that is the garden of paradise. I thought I would start telling the story of the Prophet Muhammad's ascension, which is called his mirage. The story is that one night, and they're competing understanding: some say that this happened literally in body; he was carried, and some say it's a visionary account. But the story is that the Prophet was taken from Medina to Jerusalem. And there on the Temple Mount, all the other prophets gathered with him, the prophets throughout history, and they invited him to lead them in the prayers. And he was welcomed into the prophetic fold. And then from there he was taken, and the story goes, in the the classical depictions, it's what you would have to call an angel horse. It's called the Burak. He's taken on this angel horse through the seven heavens. And as he journeys through each level of heaven, he's greeted by a prophet who is the archetypal prophet of that consciousness of that realm until he's finally taken to the point beyond which no one can pass. The angel Gabriel is with him and has to leave him at this point. He's stepping into the essence. And one of the traditional accounts of his experience here, this is a a 15th century account So, we're not reading necessarily literal words of Muhammad, but this is the story as it's been passed down. It's in the voice of Muhammad. By God's leave, as a sign of divine mercy, I was taken into the presence of the Lord of the throne. You have to remember, the throne is always the human heart. A thing too stupendous for the tongue to tell of or the imagination to picture. My sight was so dazzled by it that I feared blindness. Therefore, I shut my eyes, which was by God's good favor. When I thus veiled my sight, God shifted my sight from my eyes to my heart. So with my heart, I began to look at what I had been looking at with my eyes. It was a light so bright in its scintillation that I despair of ever describing to you what I saw of the Divine Majesty." Then I besought my Lord to complete this favor to me by granting me the boon of having a steadfast vision of God with my heart. This my Lord did, giving me that favor. So I gazed at God with my heart till it was steady, and I had a steady vision of the one. And so it said that this vision never left him, that then he was able to gaze with the eye of his heart at the oneness of God continually.